Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 31st of March 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson. Myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. We're going to start off with, uh, well, global responses, but uh, here's the Telegraph, and uh, they're declaring a, an exclusive world leaders call for pandemic treaty. And in fact, they have an article, which you'll see in a second, uh, which uh, uh, is written by Boris Johnson and a bunch of others. Uh, but I just wanted to bring this on screen, Brian, because uh, that's quite a spectacular photograph of Boris. This is him uh, in the new uh, live stream centre. I think it cost... Uh, he, he doesn't look very live in the live stream. He, he looks... He looks pretty ropey. He looks is, ro rough. Yes, yeah. yes. I think this cost about a billion pounds or something. I can't remember, but it's certainly multiple millions. Uh, to to run the, to create this uh, this room with a couple of cameras in it, uh, which says must say something about our studio brand. But anyway, uh, this was uh, this was the article. Uh, apologies for that. Uh, no government can address the threat of pandemics alone. We must come together. So let's have a look and see what they're saying here. Uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic is the greatest and the biggest challenge to the global community since the nineteen forties, apparently. Uh, at that time, following the devastation of two world wars, political leaders came together to forge the multilateral system. The aims were clear to bring countries together to dispel the temptations of isolationism and nationalism and to address the challenges that could only be achieved together in the spirit of solidarity, cooperation, namely peace, prosperity and security. Well, I'm glad all that's happened. Yes. They've come together and we're living in times of unprecedented uh... Uh, peace, peace, prosperity and health and security. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. So they go on to say, uh, today we hold the same hope that as we fight to overcome the COVID-19 pandemic together, we can build a more robust international health architecture that will protect future generations. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has been a stark and painful reminder that nobody is safe until everyone is safe. Wow. Yes. Uh, uh, and believe, uh, sorry, we believe that uh, nations should work together towards a new international treaty for pandemic preparedness and response. Such a renewed collective commitment uh, would be a milestone in stepping up pandemic preparedness at the highest political level. It would be rooted in the constitution of the World Health Organization, drawing in other relevant organizations key to this endeavor in support of the principle of health for all. So so other relevant organisations would be the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation there, Mike, I would uh, believe. Uh, I think that's uh, probably correct, yes. The main goal of this treaty would be to foster uh, an all-of-government and all-of-society approach, strengthening national, regional and global capacities and resilience to future pandemics. Uh, and it ended by saying pandemic preparedness needs global leadership for a global health system fit for this millennium. To make this commitment a reality, we must be guided by solidarity, fairness, transparency, inclusiveness, and equity. Uh, I'm just going to bring you straight into the program, Alex, and, and ask what you make of the language that's being used in this. It's religious language, Mike. Um, the world, especially the West, has become irreligious in its religion of secularism. And this language of hope and banding together is religious, not political. Uh, if you want the one sentence summary of what we've learned from the rise and fall of the EU project, uh, and indeed the even less successful projects on other continents, NAFTA, ASEAN, the African Union, it's the lesson that uh, the dreamers of globalism uh, 
have wanted to get in not international law but supranational government coming directly from above the national executives and national parliaments into member states uh, who have acceded to the agreement. It failed in the case of the EU because of overreach, but it remains unconstitutional in most countries and treasonous in many to instill or install a supranational order. This is the latest attempt to do so, uh, rallying around a new set of treaty organisations with the single issue of pandemic and public health being the driving force. But the result, uh, if it's allowed to play out over the next couple of decades, will be the same as with all the other supranational attempts that have gone before it, stretching back to the League of Nations, and that is a commissariat at the centre will dictate to governments and executives thereby will be going over the heads of their own people and their sovereignty to say, we promise that even our judges and our parliaments will act in lockstep with these orders from above. There is no separation of powers when you bring in world government by treaty. And I think we have to add in there, just for clarity, when, when you talk about religion, I believe you're talking about the religion of the beast, Alex. That would be an entirely fair summary. And of course, for decades, it was just, uh, shall we say, kooky Americans in the popular imagination who were talking about, for example, the UN and Satanism in the same breath. But we have chapter on that verse on that, don't we? Uh, not least, for example, that the Lucis Trust that publishes UN material started life as the Lucifer Trust, which they tried to cover up. Um, well, just sorry, just coming back to this again, just to take these words, solidarity, fairness, transparency, inclusiveness, equity. Um, this, these words, if you go and look on the UK column website and uh, look for the uh, One World Governance series of articles by, uh, by Martin Edwards, you'll find those words uh, spattered around those uh, uh, articles because, of course, those have been words that have been being used by these uh, globalist interests for yep. quite a long time. New normal, new speak is the way it works, isn't it? Um, so uh, what's going on, Alex, with AstraZeneca in, uh, on the European continent? This is Norway, not in the EU, but an, uh, an enthusiastic signatory to most uh, initiatives that go on, including total lockdown. Here is a popular chat, chat show hostess from Norwegian TV2. And uh, here she is saying in the original Norwegian, which has been somewhat mistranslated in some coverage of it, which, if you translate it idiomatically, means I wouldn't mind dying of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Unfortunately, many journalists have thrown it through Google Translate and have come up with the rather wooden translation, I would be happy or glad to die of AstraZeneca. That would be a mistranslation, but she is at least in idiomatic English saying, I don't mind dying of AstraZeneca. Here is the lady in question, Lynn Vick, a daytime chat show hostess, and uh, she says, I'm sure it'll sound brutal, but some folk are going to have to be sacrificed, offers in Norwegian, to be offered up in the war against Corona. And she goes on, that's how things are in every war. This time it might be me, might well be me, she says, even if it does turn out that it is the AstraZeneca the vaccine that's been causing blood clots or brain hemorrhages. The wording here indicates that she jolly well knows that there's a, a spike in those conditions. I'm in no doubt. If I am offered it, I will take it nonetheless. And then somewhat repeating her points to hammer it home, she says, because, and sorry to be blunt, some folk have to be sacrificed for the rest to be safe. That's how it is in all wars. And the final quotation uh, in that is, to explain why she is uh, quite willing to uh, gamble with life and death with the vaccine is one year into the most intrusive measures since the Second World War. There we have it again. So all the elements are coming back. The, the beast religion with sacrifice, uh, the greatest crisis since 1945. 
We're still at war, Linveek says, against Covid, and our only weapon is vaccines. Vaccines are the way out of the trenches, the way to peace. I'm sure you'll have some comment on that in a moment, both of you. Uh, but the only other claim to fame that Linveek has before this is that uh, she, a couple of years ago, managed to projectile vomit. I think we have a slide of that as well, uh, onto uh, a, a, a fitness blogger uh, who was in the studio with her. So if people want to look up on TV2 of Norway, uh, Norwegian uh, TV host vomits over guest. That uh, seems to be her previous claim to fame, but uh, this has trumped it somewhat. Um, well, we'll be mentioning Lenny Henry a little bit later in the programme, and uh, he's expressing similar views, Brian. Yes, it's it's quite incredible how the official narrative, both in UK over coronavirus, the need, essential need for vaccines in order to get some form of freedom back, that uh, doctrine in UK is clearly mirrored worldwide. So uh, this does all seem to be heading towards the new world order, one world system of government. Uh, and sorry, Alex, this, this was just her claim to fame. Was it uh, Norwegian TV host throws up on guests live on TV? Yes, it's it's well worth a bit of light relief to look it up, not least uh, the, the reactions which I've tried to freeze frame there of the rather camp fitness blogger saying, oh, what's happening? Uh, but uh, there we are. She, she's managed to uh, excel herself this time. Yes. Uh, and uh, so uh, what about uh, adverse reactions then? This, is found, this has been found by Andrew Johnson of the consistently excellent checktheevidence.com. I would advise uh, viewers to sign up to the newsletter that he puts out from there, Andrew Johnson in Derbyshire. And he has spotted a Kansas funeral home carrying a rather honest obituary. Jeannie Marie Evans, nay Meyer, is a 68-year-old who, at least from the picture, we don't know how recent, uh, looks hale and hearty. Uh, she died on the 24th of March, a week ago, and the obituary covers the uh, quite open uh, first sentence that she died as a result of a reaction to the COVID vaccine. And if people want to read that later by freeze framing, they will see that she leaves behind a large family to whom she was a matriarch. Uh, that is one victim, uh, quite clearly, of adverse reaction to COVID vaccine. Yes. OK, thank you for that, Alex. Well, over the last few days, UK Column has been doing research work on why the UK government and NHS, NHS England, is simply not telling the public the truth about vaccine adverse effects. Uh, we've used the government's own data to work on this, uh, but we also made some calls to the vaccine um, information and helpline in order to see what the NHS was saying about vaccine adverse effects. So this is the first of two audio clips. And this one just shows you the immense uh, propaganda, I'm going to call it, that the NHS unleashes on a caller the moment you call to their uh, COVID vaccination line. So let's have a listen to what you get told. You have chosen the NHS Coronavirus COVID-19 Vaccination Service. If you have been identified as being in one of the priority groups, you can book your coronavirus COVID-19 vaccine appointments now by pressing 1. Or for vaccination inquiries, press 2. Thanks for your call. We are pleased so many people have responded to their invitation for an NHS COVID-19 vaccination. Please hold and we will transfer you to someone who can help. You can choose to book your vaccination online at nhs.uk forward slash COVID vaccination, or if you prefer, please continue to hold. 
All information about COVID-19 vaccination is available online at nhs.uk forward slash COVID vaccination. Press 1 for a link in a text or for information press 2. For information about when it's your turn to get the COVID-19 vaccine, press 1. For information about the vaccine and its safety, press 2. COVID-19 vaccines developed by Oxford-AstraZeneca and Pfizer-BioNTech have been approved for use in the UK. These vaccines have met strict standards of safety, quality and effectiveness set out by the Independent Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, MHRA. So the MHRA is independent, is it? Well, this, this is basically the NHS ad, advert, um, advertising system for vaccines. And, and of course, uh, they're saying that the MHRA is independent. But note the big brother, we are pleased. I found that deeply sinister that unknown individuals are very pleased that people are taking the vaccine like good little people. Uh, the NHS then says that all information is available as it starts to talk about the link, which is clearly not true, as we'll demonstrate. And then it says press two in order to find out information on vaccine safety. Well, I did press two. And of course, you don't find any proper detail about vaccine safety. But just to reinforce the point, let's bring this on screen because this is the first link that the lady's voice pointed you to, nhs.uk forward slash COVID vaccination. Uh, there is the, uh, the first link, which is the one they're interested in. And of course, that is about booking or managing your vaccination. It's not giving you any information about risks. Um, but uh, if you click on that link on screen, it brings up this NHS page, which is all about um, coronavirus vaccination. Um, the vaccine, who can get the vaccine, how you'll be contacted, what happens at your appointment, health conditions and coronavirus vaccination. Still no detail about adverse side effects. There is a part here about uh, how safe is the COVID-19 vaccine. But really, this just reassures people that the vaccine is safe. It's been approved. You can trust it. Trust us. Take the vaccine. And then at the bottom, there are some more links uh, which simply push, push you through to more information saying, trust us, trust the vaccine, the vaccine's safe. So let's see what happens when you finally get through to an operator. And uh, I was able to do this after hearing that section of the NHS advertising how safe the vaccines are. Now, this gentleman, I have no complaints with the way that he handled uh, my call because clearly he was uh, operating from a script. And I think the NHS is cynically, very cynically using people um, in the position of a call center operative without training them properly into what the real uh, vaccine adverse effects are and what the real risks to people are. So listen very carefully to what this gentleman says to me as I make the call as a somewhat vulnerable elderly person. Hello, my name is Khalifa. You're through to the NHS vaccination booking line. How can I help you today? Oh, hello. Um, I, I've been thinking about vaccination, but I've I've been trying to get hold of some information about um, what, what the side effects are for the vaccination. Yep, and what are you looking to ask for, sir? Well, I'd, I'd like to know what 
what the possible side effects, the adverse effects from the vaccination are. Uh, can you repeat that again, please? You'll fade in a way. You would like to learn about uh, what the, the side effects. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Yeah, so those side effects are, uh, but these are not 100%, but these are the stuff that they have looked into. Basically, a sore arm when the needle goes in, or feeling tired, a headache, feeling or being sick. And if you have a temperature, you might, yeah, and you might have a high temperature. Uh, and, and are those the only possible side effects? Yes, that they know about right now. Uh, are you sure? Uh, yes, uh, this is the side effect that they have put down on the question. What side effects are you worried about? Uh, well, I, I've been looking at side effects which include blood clots and... Is that through the, is that through Google or NHS? Uh, well, that's from that's through the government. And is that the NHS website? Do, do you do you know what the MHRA is? What website are you looking at, sir? Are you looking at NHS? I, I'm looking at the. Because you have to. I'm looking at the. Should I give? Should I give you? Should I give you the NHS website for the side effects? Uh, that's the most reliable source. But I've already looked at all the NHS data, and it's not the same as the MHRA data. The MHRA is talking about many different side effects, including coronaries, uh, uh, blood clots, uh, joint pains. I will, I will advise you. I would advise you to look at the NHS website because that's the most reliable website you can look at. Okay, so where where do I go to see the side effects on the NHS website? So you type in on Google, type in NHS vaccination side effects. Then it should be the first one you click on. And then, and I wish I could send you the link, but there's no way for me to send you the link. But if you go on Google, type in NHS vaccination side effects, and you should click on the website that tells you www.nhs slash coronavirus side effects. Do you, do you know about the yellow card system? Uh, the yellow card, the yellow card system, uh, yeah, so basically, uh, you can report any sub, any side effects using the coronavirus yellow card? Yes, that's correct. Ha have you seen all of the information listed for the yellow card side effects? Have you seen that? Uh, yes, sir. I just gave you the yellow card, the information, the side effects. And, but have you have you seen that information yourself? Yes, it's on the website that I gave you just now, sir. Right, but on the yellow card information, it talks about people dying. It talks about coronaries, heart attacks. Yeah, I think you shouldn't. Yeah, you should. You shouldn't look at that website, sir. Uh, just look at the NHS website because that's the most reliable. The source you can read from the NHS website are made from people who have looked into the vaccine.
what did the man say to me? The man said to me that I should not look at the government's official data on vaccine uh, adverse effects, the MHRA data. I should not look at that data. I should only look at the NHS data. And of course, when you look at the NHS data, it doesn't point you at the tremendous and dangerous adverse effects of the COVID vaccinations. So let's see where the public get taken when we follow the advice that that gentleman has just given us. So here we are into NHS vaccination side effects and what comes up, side effects of the coronavirus vaccines and what does it talk about, less common side effects. And it has got some concerns there um, if you're breast uh, screening, then you should mention that you've had the vaccine when you attend, but it doesn't give any warnings about uh, being pregnant and taking the vaccine. And then down here, what do we see? Well, so far, millions of people have been given a COVID-19 vaccine and reports of serious side effects, such as allergic reactions, have been very rare. No long-term complications have been reported. That is an absolute lie because, of course, there have been many serious effects and many people have died. So the NHS is deliberately lying to the public and there is no way that this can be accidental. This must be deliberate policy by the NHS to lie to the uh, UK public over the dangers of the vaccine adverse effects. So if we follow the links through that this gen uh, that uh, that um, particular web link takes you to the vaccine adverse effects. You then come to NHS inform. Let's blow up the effects. And once again, the only effects being pushed at the public are mild effects, tenderness, headache, muscle ache, feeling tired, maybe a fever, but that'll clear up over a few days. So uh, this is just repeating mild side effects. If we follow this page through, it will move on to uh, this one about fever, but it says a fever is common if the fever starts more than 48 hours after the vaccination or lasts longer than 48 hours, you should self-isolate and book a test. Mike, why do you think you would need to book a test? Well, they must be concerned that you've caught COVID somehow. Uh, but that would mean you caught COVID from the vaccination. Yes. Yes, indeed. So let's follow on through this pernicious trail of advice. Uh, if you look at this page, when you're trying to look for side effects, and I am following the trail which the NHS sets, down here you will see it says in very, very small letters, possible side effects. If we follow that link through, it brings us to this page. And the possible side effects are once again, the relatively mild side effects of tiredness, headache, chills. But now we've got joint pain and fever, but we've got injection site swelling, redness and nausea, feeling unwell. These are relatively minor side effects. But what the public have, have uh, what's been done to the public is that they've been taken in a circle of information so that they keep coming back to the minor adverse effects and not the major and recorded the true recorded vaccine adverse effects. So if we follow the trail through, we eventually can find this paragraph. It takes a great deal of time to find this. Reporting of side effects, 
And in here, you will see it then starts talking about the coronavirus yellow card reporting site. So by using applied psychology, the government's now steering the public away from finding the vaccine adverse effects by listing them under reporting of side effects. People who want to report a side effect are on the right trail, but people who are looking for the side effects still have no idea where the information is held. So let's bring you on to the next page you come to, which is the coronavirus yellow card reporting site. You are still not at the actual data because now we've got another link that we've got to click on. And when we click on this link, which is coronavirus 19 vaccine adverse reactions, it will bring us through onto this page. And uh, now we've got coronavirus weekly summary of yellow card reporting. So finally, we appear to be able to breathe a, a breath of uh, relief that we found a link. We are going to click on this link and we're going to go to the vaccine adverse effects. But I'm afraid the answer is uh, no, because if we click on that link, we come through to another page. And what we've really got here is so much information. We've had to take a little video clip, which I hope is going to play, which will actually show us how much data the reader has to go through before you will actually find the real data on the adverse reactions. So the screen is scrolling. If you're listening to us today and not watching live, uh, we're going through what is a yellow card. We're going through yellow card reports. Uh, we're talking about numbers of people who've received the, the vaccination. We're looking at yellow card trends. We've still got no data on the vaccine adverse effects. Uh, we're looking at overall safety, where the government reassures people they're safe. Then we get some warnings about anaphylaxis and Bell's palsy. Uh, we've got some war warnings of um, blood clotting. Then we have conclusions, which is all about safety. Then we finally get the vaccine analysis print. And the key links are in the middle of the screen, which say vaccine analysis profile Pfizer, one for AstraZeneca, and uh, one for brand unspecified. Have we got the data? Alex, I can see you indicating you want to come in. Yes, uh, while you've been talking, a German viewer has pointed out that 2020news.de is reporting the European economic area, that's the EU plus some people, uh, statistics for adverse reactions as gathered by the European Medical Agency, ema.europa.eu. So an agency of the EU is doing this. Here are the individual case safety reports, the ICSRs, for the year ending March. So it starts last April. That is the situation from uh, March through to, sorry, from April through to March. And if I can remember which way to swing this, here we are. Uh, this at the end is the five to six fold spike since uh, just a month or so ago uh, due to the rollout of COVID vaccines. That's a five to six fold increase in adverse reactions as reported by the European Medical Agency. Alex, thank you very much for interjecting with that. And it's a wonderful introduction because the only way we can show people uh, a fraction of the real dangers of COVID adverse reactions using 
the data from the UK government and the MHRA itself is to put in this other short video clip uh, scrolling down all of the adverse effects. So let's let this one run. This is only for Pfizer. It's going to scroll very quickly, but we've got effect, adverse effect after adverse effect affecting every part of the body, the brain, hearing, eyes, nose, throat, tongue, uh, coronaries, thrombosis, anaphylactic shock. It goes on and on. And of course, the far right column, which is difficult to see because it's scrolling so fast, also includes deaths. And this is simply for Pfizer. This is not for AstraZeneca and it's not for uh, any other uh, vaccines going. It's still rolling on screen if you're just listening in. And people have now been shown how to get to these links themselves, but you need to read this data to understand the real risks of the vaccine and the adverse effects. And of course, if you have an underlying condition, you're gonna be subject to even greater risk uh, from these effects. So the total reactions were 108,649 with 259 deaths. And you reported that, I think it was on last Friday's news, Mike, mm. that figure came up. So where do we want to take people? Well, I'm going to say a big thank you to all the UK Column supporters who got on to this amazing uh, testimony by a lady called Nicola, who describes what happened to her fit, healthy 58-year-old husband after he had an AstraZeneca vaccine. That's now up to 40,743 views and the comments on it are outstanding. So if you haven't seen that, please look at it and share. I'd also like to say No Smoke Without Fire Part 3, where I'm talking with former nurse Debbie Evans over the ad, uh, vaccine adverse reactions is now up to 26,500 views. But we did that uh, within a pub. And I did this deliberately because I made the point that if we were able to go into a pub to sit and chat and have a social drink with people, people would be talking about lockdown, they would be talking about vaccines, and they would be warning uh, their fellow men and women about the dangers of vaccine adverse effects as recorded by the government. Well, somebody else had something to say about men in pubs, Mike. Uh, yes. So uh, Lenny Henry uh, has pushed out a letter to loved ones, he's calling it. It's on a black background because this is targeted. Uh, it's an open letter targeted at the black community in particular. Um, and uh, so it's a, a letter to urge black Britons to take the COVID-19 vaccine. It's a short film uh, based on has been made based on this letter. Uh, and it's been made by BAFTA award winning director. Ama Asante, and it stars Adrian Lester, David Harewood, uh, and a number of other people. It's going to be aired uh, beginning tonight from 8 p.m. on Sky, on BT Sport, on Viacom, on Discovery, on A&E, and on Rock, and also on Channel 5. Um, and so uh, Lenny Henry was saying in this letter that people should trust, trust the facts. Um, so uh, he was speaking to BBC Breakfast this morning. Uh, let's just listen to a short excerpt from that. I was talking to some friends and colleagues of mine and just going, why aren't we taking the vaccine? It's the key to our way out of the pandemic. And um, it seemed to me that the, the way to do it was 
the way we approached the diversity um, issue, which was to write an open letter. So my colleagues and I put this letter together and we got some of the most high profile names to some extraordinary names, Chiwetel Ledgerford, Tandy Newton, um, Baroness Doreen Lawrence, people like that. They all signed the letter. And then I suggested that Ama Asante, the brilliant director of Bell and United Kingdom, make a little film with people talking directly to our loved ones and our friends and families saying, please take the jab. It's our way of protecting our community. And it came together really quickly. I mean, we wrote the letter, we asked Amma, she agreed, and within a couple of weeks, we we're making the film. And, and people are all over the place. Amma's in, in Scandinavia, David Harewood's in Canada, um, Adrian Lester's south of the river, so he's impossible to get hold of. Um, <laughs> we all managed. Anyway, you get the point. Uh, the, the, the little video clip that goes with this open letter itself is, is well, how do we describe it? It's, it's very much to, uh, supposed to tug on people's heartstrings. Uh, and well, with lots of false tears and emotion. Yes, yes, and, and it is fake emotion. Um, but the message very strongly is that just as, as we heard from Alex uh, from uh, Norway earlier on, uh, the, the message very much is that vaccine is the only way out of this. But this was the, this was the key quote that he told the BBC uh, this morning. If you're in any way hesitant, talk to a medical professional, trust the experts. Don't trust your mate down the pub, Brian, uh, or conspiracies online. So um, uh, you're not to be trusted. Well, I, I did think he might have been talking to me personally since the pub's on open at the moment. So why would you be trusting your mate down at the pub? Um, but of course, Lenny Henry has no idea, apparently, of the true risks of vaccines and those dangerous adverse effects, including people dying because presumably he hasn't looked at the government's own statistics. He says, don't listen to people on social media, go to your GP and discuss it with them. I totally agree with that advice. I recommend that people go to their GP, but when they go, they take a printed off copy of the MHRA um, information on vaccine adverse side effects so that each of those side effects can be discussed with your GP. And if somebody would like to take Lenny Henry's advice and do that, taking the data of adverse effects with them, UK Column would love to know how you get on. Um, so that, where does that take us? Uh, well, I couldn't resist this one because if you trust Big Pharma, this was just one article from The Guardian sent through to us that a French pharma firm was found guilty over medical scandal in which Mm, up to 2,000 people died. We don't really know how many died, but we'll, we think it was up to 2,000. And if you read the article, of course, the big pharma company uh, lied, spanned the truth, uh, did everything it could to make sure it wouldn't be held to account for the deaths. Uh, could this be why Pfizer and AstraZeneca have been indemnified against uh, comeback from the COVID-19 vaccine shots? Now, uh, lockdown, of course, uh, we are slowly coming out of lockdown, so says the government. Uh, but uh, how slowly and are we ever going to actually come out of lockdown? Let's uh, have a look at this. Talk Radio pushed this tweet out earlier on today. Uh, Julia asks, uh, Julia Hartley Brewer asks Housing Secretary Robert Jenrick, 10 times what is the number of deaths from COVID we're willing to live with before restrictions are no longer in place? Do you not know the number? Is it above your pay grade? 
Well, let's just have a quick listen to what uh, how that conversation went, because I think it's uh, very telling. Well, what, what is the number of deaths that we're willing to live with from COVID? Well, we have said that we're going to have to live with COVID for a very long give me, time. Give me a number of deaths. What's, what, what's discussed at the Cabinet table? What number of deaths? Because it looks to me like we're heading towards a zero COVID policy, which is impossible. So where are we? We're on, we're on an average of what? You know, we've got a thousand deaths a week at the moment from COVID. Just nine uh, percent of all deaths uh, currently are from COVID. What number do we have to get it down to before normal life resumes if we're going on the data, not dates? No, the, the Prime Minister has been clear that we're not adopting a zero COVID policy. We okay, don't so what's the number? We, we don't think that's possible. So what's the number? In, in any country, but certainly not one which is an open international country. So it's like not our. zero. It's not where we are now. What's the number? Well, I'm, I'm not going to put a number. Do on we it. have? We're, has the government discussed a number and we're not telling us? They're not telling us, or is there not a number? We're not adopting a policy where we think we can eliminate the virus. That's that's not practical. What we can do is try to control it and keep it at a low level so that we can then use test, trace and isolate. What's, what is the low level? What's the number? To protect people. What is the low, num- um, what is the low number? We, we haven't put a, a number on it, Julian. I, I don't so we don't have it. So it's a low number. But we do want to keep, we have to keep it very low. You can see internationally. It's not zero. It's not the low number we're at now. And it's somewhere in the middle there. Is, is, the, is the government going to at any point come up with a number? Has, has the, has, is the government going to tell us what the number is? I mean, we're going on data, not dates. Surely we must know what the number is. Well, we do want to keep cases very low. If you can keep it at a very low level, then you can have a fully functioning test, trace and isolate system. Mm. That's what some other countries internationally have managed to do. And we're heading in the direction of that. But we're not there yet. Cases are so, still okay, so it's de- like it's, them to be. So we're not there. Also- when, will we, when will we know we're there if it's not zero? And I mean, ha- are you just not telling me the number or do you not know the number? Is it above your pay grade? Julia, I think the the important thing here is that cases are falling. They are at a relatively low level, but they're not as low as we'd like them to be. And how low would that be? Most people want to How low would that How low do we want them to be? How low would you like the number to be? What is the number? What is the percentage or the actual number of people who are infected or, or in hospital or have died of COVID? What is that number? If it's not low enough now and it's not zero, what is that number? Well, we do. I'm not going to put a number on it, Julia, with respect, but we do need it, the cases to continue to fall. We're very conscious of what we're seeing in other European countries where cases are actually rising. That's irrelevant. In We've the, got a travel ban. Well, it's not irrelevant. So you get the point again. It's very, very clear that uh, nobody in government, or at least... Well, they're, they're lying, Mike. She, she's starting to laugh at this man and, and, of course, is regarding him as an idiot. Well, he's a dangerous idiot because he's helping to put this policy in place. But he won't declare this because it's, it's an open-ended question what, what the number is, because if you don't declare the number, you can keep the country in lockdown forever. That's exactly it. So, so uh, he's talking about a permanent lockdown to some degree. Uh, he's talking about lowering COVID in the first, until a full test and trace system could be put in place. Um, well, of course, the pubs are due to open and other uh, restaurants as well due to open in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, and... Uh, Uh, App users will have to scan an NHS QR poster at relevant venues. That means all venues. But in the past, it has been one member of a group. If you're going there with a group of people, one person in the group was supposed to scan the QR code or give their contact details for test and trace. 
that appears to be changing. I look quite a number of people talking about this in social media now. So let's just have a look and see the email that's being sent out apparently to, uh, to uh, owners of pubs and restaurants and so on. Uh, please download and print your new official NHS QR code poster. The app has been uh, shown to reduce cases, really. I would like to see where it's been shown to reduce cases, but the app has apparently been shown to reduce cases of COVID-19. And we are grateful for the hard work by businesses like yours, which have made this possible. As the country follows the roadmap out of lockdown, it's more important than ever that in order to keep businesses open, everyone follows the test and trace check-in procedure. Uh, it goes on to say, from March 29th, 2021, regulations regarding venue check-in are changing, uh, even though the venues aren't opening yet. But anyway, the, from, from then they're changing. All visitors, all visitors will be required to check in uh, to enter hospitality venues, not just one per group. Individuals can do this by checking in with the NHS COVID-19 app or by providing their name and contact details. Anyone who does not comply must be refused entry. Ensure you're compliant with rules or you may face a £1,000 fine. Now, some of the people that were posting this on social media that own uh, venues, hospitality venues, were saying, uh, were really asking their customers if they don't have a smartphone to get a smartphone because they don't want to have to uh, record uh, names and addresses manually. This would be, uh, they've already got enough to do under the new regulations. Uh, it goes on to say, as a hospitality venue, you're legally required to display an official NHS QR code poster at your venue and to ensure all individuals check in. We're issuing updated posters to make this change in regulations clear for visitors when entering your venue. Please replace your existing NHS QR codes. So uh, QR code posters. Um, so tra track and trace is being uh, upped and uh, it's being leveled up perhaps is the, is the uh, or leveled up is perhaps the uh, term that we could use. Um, and uh, so the, the uh, data gathering uh, continues apace. Um, but Alex, uh, let's uh, come on to an MP, uh, Karen Bradley. Uh, and uh, she had this to say, uh, under the common law system, one is free to do whatever one wishes unless the law says otherwise. And then to, uh, presume she's talking about uh, the uh, uh, emergency legislation here, saying that these laws are Napoleonic. Was she listening to you? I do wonder, Mike, perhaps we shouldn't kid ourselves that MPs do listen in, uh, in numbers to us, but I would say at least two cheers for Karen Bradley. Of course, she has had flack for not squashing the largely civil service initiated process of prosecuting veterans in the time when she was Theresa May's Northern Ireland secretary. But Karen Bradley has done a number of frank and honest things, including admitting that she was uh, ignorant of Northern Irish politics before being appointed Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Uh, which I think deserves some some kudos rather than pretending that she knew. Uh, and she has had in other regards quite a libertarian record. Here from Hansard, the record of parliamentary debates is the quotation in context. This was just before Parliament rose for the Easter recess. So the last day of debates, there was a coronavirus debate on the Thursday, the 25th of March, so a week tomorrow. And interestingly, she even understands to some extent what the phrase the law of the land means. It's often bandied about as though it meant any statute law is the law of the land. Well, for details on that, follow our series, A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution, because the law of the land is the natural law, common law. But she does at least make the useful point that Parliament can't be passing statutes for virtue signalling or to be selectively applied in what's now called anarcho-tyranny. We don't like your gathering, so we'll apply the law with a truncheon. Uh, we do like your gathering, so we'll uh, uh, look the other way. 
So well done to her for that. And it's a good segue, in fact, from uh, what you were just covering, uh, not least uh, because, uh, as Magpie asked in the uh, chat box just now, uh, why was Mr. Jenrick, the housing secretary, being expected to give accounts of the uh, health policy of Her Majesty's government? Now, Karen Bradley might not be perhaps completely up to speed on this historically. It's a very complicated area that we are trying to tease out with listeners and viewers' help as we go through this series, particularly as we're in our multi-part episode now, episode five on the concepts of democracy and so-called parliamentary sovereignty. Uh, but this is key to it because uh, the only uh, real ministers of the crown worth having uh, and the only ones that are lawful if you analyze it properly are those from outside the commons who come to the commons to be grilled and who crucially can individually be sacked uh, or uh, have a motion of no, con no confidence passed in them so that the crown has to replace them without this collegiate responsibility that too is part of napoleonic law that's crept in the idea that the cabinet of ministers is one for all and all for one it's one of the undoings of the historical English constitution. And uh, as we go through, I think the whole of this month in the dissident's guide format and other formats, we will be starting to put chapter and verse to that. Yes, okay, thank you for that, Alex. Uh, now, uh, here's a tweet from uh, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance uh, from this morning. Uh, they said, influenza type A is constantly circulating globally with an ever-present risk of being transmitted to humans from birds, pigs, and other zoonotic hosts. Here's how it could trigger the next pandemic, and they uh, linked to uh, this article, uh, the next pandemic, H5N1 and H7N9 influenza, question mark. Uh, and they're saying uh, more than 100 years after the 1918 Spanish influenza pandemic, type A influenza virus not only poses one of the largest threats to the modern world, uh, but the risk of spillover uh, in, uh, uh, sorry, and to, uh, but the risk of spillover of avian influenza from poultry and humans is growing. Uh, they say, uh, as you can see there, consistently circulating. Is it consistently circulating? Well, let's just remind ourselves from the UK government's uh, COVID-19 and influenza uh, report, weekly report. This is the most recent one, weekly influenza hospital admissions by influenza type. Uh, and we can see that certainly since week one, there has not been a single uh, type A influenza hospital admission. Uh, but let's remind ourselves what the World Health Organization is saying about this. This is global circulation of influenza viruses, the number of specimens positive for influenza by subtype, and all the type A's are in blue. Uh, so you can see that uh, towards uh, the end of, the, uh, of last year, so the end of 2019, there were quite a number of uh, weekly uh, uh, positive results uh, for influenza A. But from week uh, 16 or week 17 there, that dropped to zero, at least on this graph. And this particular one was uh, created on the 20th of November, 2020. Let's bring it right up to date. Uh, here we go. Um, and uh, well, we can see that type A still doesn't seem to be anywhere to be seen, um, but the graph does seem to be uh, have been changed a little bit. Let's just blow this up so everybody can see. Um, and apparently there was actually some influenza doing the rounds uh, from week 36 onwards. Uh, but so little that you can barely see it on the on the graph itself, and certainly no type A influenza. So coming back to this article that they've written then, uh, they go on to say, and yet even though there are epidemics of different seasonal influenza strains every winter, the virus is widely perceived to be low risk by the majority of the public. Now, why would that be? Could it be because with respect to flu, uh, the public has a much more sensible uh, attitude towards illness and death. Um, 
compared to the absolute psychological operation that has been run on them with respect to COVID-19. Um, and uh, so they have a low risk, or they perceive a low risk with flu for that reason mainly. But it does amaze me, amuse me, that uh, Gavi is attempting to push influenza A at a time when uh, everybody is recognizing that flu has effectively disappeared yeah. uh, from circulation it's just, it's completely. Just amazing that it's flown away. It has just flown away. Now, Alex, uh, what's Reiner Fulmich uh, been talking about uh, recently? Rainer Fulmich, of course, the German and Californian accredited uh, attorney, uh, has been very closely watched by a number of lockdown sceptics of different persuasions. And in hearing 44 of the Stiftung, Stiftung Corona Ausschuss, which he leads, the German extra parliamentary uh, inquiry and initiative of German lawyers uh, to speak to uh, German and foreign witnesses, he has got to Vera Sharav who, as you saw on screen there, uh, is quite uh, advanced in years now. She is a child survivor of the Holocaust. And uh, people have in various formats, including the one on screen from Brand New Tube, but she can easily be found on video platforms, Vera Sharav talking to Rainer Filmich. Uh, she's given quite a long testimony in English with, I must say, Rainer Filmich doing a professional level interpreting job, uh, for which total kudos, because he's not trained for that, but he's done it as well as a professional would. Uh, and that has been fully transcribed by our very loyal and useful long-term viewer, Ned Pamphilon, who has his own website. Uh, and he has transcribed the session uh, under the, the heading of From T4 to COVID-1984. Uh, now, people have been asking uh, what they can do to get or even help make transcripts of the usual German sessions of this uh, hearing. Uh, that is a very hard uh, job and very time consuming and people should basically wait for the momentum to develop for this, this to be crowdsourced. It's far much more much more work than people might imagine. But this was done in English as testimony and Ned has wonderfully transcribed it. Uh, you might want to read out uh, what Vera Sharav says at this point in her testimony. She said, people are being conditioned to submit passively to government dictates. Uh, children who are deprived of an education are being conditioned to distrust people. Mandatory masks are an insidious psychological weapon. They demean our dignity as free human beings. Uh, they do not work in an epidemic and are, symbolic equivalent, are, are the symbolic equivalent of the yellow star. Study after study show lockdowns destroying millions of lives and livelihoods. So there she is speaking in her expertise. And... Uh... I will choose my words very carefully. She doesn't have anything about her of the professional Holocaust survivor. I mean, no insults to anyone, but I think people, including many Jews, will understand what I mean. There is there is no attempt here to tug heartstrings. Uh, she is very focused on the issue of uh, unfairly obtained or forced consent, which, by the way, is actually a key issue we're going into with the question of the, the uh, deceit of parliamentary sovereignty at the moment. Has consent been freely obtained? Uh, so as the Dissidents' Guide series develops, we'll be going into that more. But here is the key and or original meaning of uh, informed consent, which is pharmaceuticals. Vera Sharav uh, had an issue with her son and pharmaceuticals, which has made her a lifelong campaigner, particularly on the issue of pharmaceuticals, presuming consent or just putting down on the form he would have consented if he'd been compost mentis uh, to test those who are mentally out of it or children. Uh, on, with certain products. And even before, well, just before the uh, 2009 panic, which was the precursor to what we're living through at the moment, of course, perhaps in the last year when the Nature imprint uh, was fair about these things, they profiled Vera Sharav. And uh, here is what they said in their uh, September 2008 uh, issue 
uh, a Massachusetts uh, academic who is favorable to her, uh, Angeli, says that Sharav is sometimes hyperbolic, which means over the top, but also her facts are by and large correct. And uh, the lady says that even if Vera Sharav sometimes gets on a detour, she does always supply the evidence for her views. And uh, Sharaf, uh, as we read here, is particularly motivated to protect children from basically experimentation, contrary to the Nuremberg Code and the various other things that have been lumped in with that recently, the Helsinki Declaration. Uh, there has been some criticism for balance. Uh, another uh, biomedic, uh, Alec, uh, Arthur Kaplan, uh, chair of the Department of Medical Ethics, uh, so not a biomedic, but a medical ethicist at Pennsylvania University, uh, says that she's a dangerous gadfly, which is a posh word for, a, for an amateur having a go with professionals. Uh, he says that she's best on subjects she knows something about, but when she attacks efforts to find better therapies, uh, then uh, blah, 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 blah. It's crazy to say you won't do the research. This is him defending the pharmaceutical industries if you can't get good informed consent when the alternative could be death, not will be death, could be death. So even 12, 13 years ago, the pharmaceutical and academic line of defense was Vera Sharav, stop carping on about obtaining consent because we know better than you that people will die if we don't inject. Yes. Okay. Uh, we need to uh, quickly move on unless you've got something. No, no. Okay. Uh, if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please uh, head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there and that would be very much appreciated. Uh, and also please do share material on the various platforms uh, as you can. And uh, just an update on David Noakes. Uh, we understand that things are going well at the moment. I can't tell you too much more than that, uh, but there has been a court hearing. And um, David was very keen that one of the remarks from his uh, lawyer um, was uh, made available to people because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very clear statement. Uh, this is part of a summary by the advocate. He said, I'm so sorry, but I do not really have the time to summarize my plea. In short, I said that no one complained, no one was harmed, no one was defrauded, and all expert reports showed that GC math was at worst harmless. So uh, I've read that statement out, make of it what you will, um, but it appears that there may be some good news on the horizon with regard to David Noakes, and we'll keep you posted. Um, okay, Alex, uh, are we heading over to Canada? Just very quickly for a mention, really, uh, there is an organisation organization now which uh, takes a line from the Canadian national anthem, O Canada, we stand on guard for thee, and it's called Police on Guard for Thee. And uh, as you can see from the About section with a beautiful illustration of the federal parliament in uh, Ottawa, uh, they call themselves a group of active duty and retired police officers who've assembled to create a haven of truth and justice for the police community and to uh, educate them in lawfulness. And uh, in a brilliant example of what a small new YouTube channel can do when it properly annotates and timestamps its videos, uh, it has, uh, there's, a, there's a YouTube channel which has just been set up. The slide after this one will show the details, but this one is a, a kind of potted highlights uh, of the advice given by a Canadian policeman uh, representing that organization, uh, these 10 practical tips, as it's called in that video, to regain our freedom uh, with retired police inspector Len Fall uh, are just the flavor of UK column. And people often criticize us uh, for being naive and saying, write letters to your MP. Uh, but this, of course, at least from a lawful policeman's point of view, is what you mustn't tire of doing. Uh, continue to mount peaceful protests. Numbers matter. 
uh, sign petitions, hold people to account, say to your local and national politicians, we won't vote for you again because of the, the line you've towed. And here is the longer interview uh, which people can find. And I would suggest they might want to subscribe to this brand new YouTube channel, which has got very low num numbers at the moment because it seems to be really promising and professional. Julius Ruchel, uh, he is local uh, to Lenfall in uh, Canada and in the same city, in fact. And they're talking about stopping the lockdown uh, just to, to show people what kind of breakdown of uh, points are made by Lenfall in this rather splendid interview, which globalresearch.ca has picked up on. Uh, they ask the question, can police stop unconstitutional laws? Can they, uh, they talk about the obligation on police to say no to an unconstitutional order. Interestingly, like many people, uh, such as Gemma O'Doherty and John Waters in Ireland, they're noticing that courts have completely caved in to unappointed health, uh, unelected appointed health officials. Again, a separation of powers and a breach of oath and duty on the part of uh, courts and indeed police who go along with it. Uh, so a very useful, uh, lawful uh, approach being taken here. Uh, the summary or the final minutes of the Lenfall interview get even more interesting because they're talking about checks and balances, the, the, the nub of the matter that we're going into in the Dissident's Guide to the Constitution to prevent this ever happening again. So heartily recommended. Okay, let's, uh, let's move on to uh, the new Green Deal. And uh, here's the wonderful Alex Sharma on screen. Uh, the people who have done the least to cause the climate crisis are suffering the most, he says. Uh, that is searing injustice. And so they're holding an event uh, this week, which is going to bring together countries and partners uh, to work on solutions to the flooding, drought and extreme temperatures faced by many developing countries. Uh, but here's the, here's the kicker, uh, as well as opportunities for energy access, cleaner air and smarter cities. Uh, and of course, when you start looking at the detail of it, it's actually about uh, finance, uh, because here we go, ahead of the government event, government event uh, the UK government is announcing £500,000 of funding for the new initiative for voluntary carbon, carbon market uh, integrity. Um, so this is all about high quality voluntary carbon markets, which could increase financial flows to where they're most needed, um, helping to create greener, more inclusive and resilient economies around the world. Uh, let's not forget uh, what uh, Rishi Sunak said at the end of last year. We want to renew the UK's, the City of London's position as the world's preeminent financial set financial center well if you've got 500 billion on your books you probably would be quite keen on that yes right, indeed you? but it gets better uh, because uh, well uh, Alec is very keen on debt all apparently because uh, debt all has now become the official hygiene partner for cop 26 which of course is happening in glasgow later in the year as the uk puts the safety of delegates and their local community at front and center of planning so that should make everybody feel extremely safe. Are they going to be drinking it? That would be impressive, Mike. It would be. It Down would, a few bottles of death. It, it would be, yeah. yes. Uh, but uh, a part and parcel of this is the Race to Zero. Uh, here's the Race to Zero campaign. Not clear from that website exactly what zero is. Is it zero population, uh, zero COVID, uh, zero uh, emissions? Well, cl clearly they're saying it's zero emissions, but of course, probably kind of zero emissions unless you've got zero people. But anyway, uh, the Race to Zero is a global initiative which is backed by science-based targets uh, to commit businesses, cities, regions, investors and universities to achieve net zero emissions by 2050 at the very latest. And the government is very pleased to announce that almost one in three of the UK largest businesses are leading the way in the world's transition to a low carbon economy, uh, committing to align with UK government ambitions to eliminate the UK's contribution to climate change by 2050. 
So as of yesterday, 30 of the UK's FTSE 100 companies have signed. AstraZeneca being, the, the list was uh, alf alphabetical, so AstraZeneca was number one on the list. Uh, so they have committed to be uh, carbon neutral, uh, which is fantastic news, uh, perhaps by uh, giving more people injections, which uh, means that uh, they won't be generating any carbon. But anyway, that's another thing. But of course, we've got to remember why these companies are getting on board with this, uh, because also at the end of last year, Mark Carney uh, was, uh, I think actually it was the end of 2019 rather, uh, he was saying, we will not get to net zero as in a niche. It requires a whole of economy transition. Uh, and he also said on another occasion, companies that don't adapt, including companies in the financial system, will go bankrupt without question. There will be industries, sectors, and firms that do very well during this process because they'll be part of the solution, uh, but there will also be ones that lag behind and they will be punished. Um, but it's not just companies, it's not just governments, it's also military, uh, because here's Jeremy Quinn, the defense minister, and what does he have to say? The threat posed by climate change is one that affects us all, and for defense, uh, he said, uh, as a global military leader, we must evolve and set an example on how to protect peace and stability while embracing the sustainability and reducing our carbon emissions. But it's, they're not reducing their, well, I won't go on to say what I was thinking there, but, but uh, there are certainly certain emissions that are coming out of government here that don't, don't get any more pleasant smelling. But anyway, uh, my question, Brian, is uh, how do you reduce, if you're, if you're you know, involved in some kind of military activity, how do you reduce your carbon emissions? Switch the tank, tank off? Do you? Well, yeah, they're going to do all those things. You know, they're going to be running, um, well, we won't have any tanks. That's how they've solved that problem. But yes. if we did have tanks, they'd be running them on used chip oil. That's uh, the usual way of doing it. Uh, but of course, if you look at ultimately what uh, the military are designed to do, it's to destroy things, whether it's people or buildings or the environment. So this is complete nonsense. What, what are we seeing here? We're seeing new speak. Um, I'm just going to echo where Alex took us that this is a religion these people are involved in. And that religion, of course, is nonsensical, but ultimately it's going to hurt a lot of people. So they're preaching, saving the world while they're doing the exact opposite. Um, well, Alex, uh, what's the European Commission getting into trouble for? Uh, really for having complete double standards vis-a-vis -vis France on the one hand and Poland and Hungary on the other. Uh, when they claim the right to define the term rule of law and freedom and democracy, uh, they never have a go, nor indeed do the likes of the OSCE or the Council of Europe, they never have a go at key Western founder members like France. But in a rather unprecedented move, the European Commission, and in fact its president Ursula von der Leyen, has received a letter from, if her memory, uh, 26 uh, Muslim or pro-Muslim pro lobby lobbying organizations from about seven member countries uh, urging the Commission to do what it has a treaty right to do in the EU system to investigate member states over abuses in their rule of law. Uh, because after a spate of terrorist incidents and near misses in France, Emmanuel Macron got very tough indeed on mosques and had a wave of closures and also a spate of talkings to, to mosques and imams, uh, browbeating them into signing charters defining how they were going to be Muslims in France. So uh, part of the complaints which has been lodged with Ursula von der Leyen reads, 
governmental leaders and politicians negatively and strongly influence public opinion. In France, this trend has led to Muslim communities becoming targets of increased hostility, more Islamophobia and increasing violence. It is thus imperative that you, Ursula von der Leyen, take a leading role as the European Commission President to intervene in France's laws, horror of horrors to the French, of course, that target Muslims. But they have signed up to the EU and this can happen under the EU system. Uh, the writers add, we are reaching out to you because there is no real or effective remedy within the French legal system to stop the continuation of Islamophobia by the French government within the meanings established by European case law. The exhaustion of national remedies will not bring effective relief for Muslims in France. Well, obviously not if the head of state uh, is already dictating how to be a Muslim in France. Uh, here are some of the issues that they are enumerating. France has implemented numerous laws designed to limit freedom of belief and to punish the manifestation of religion, which has been a long bugbear in France. No, no religious symbols and clothing. Uh, President Macron's plan against separatism, he's now using the Soviet word uh, to describe any Islam in public, solely focuses on political, ideological, theological and financial control of Muslim communities. I have to admit that the Charity Commission of England and Wales is quite comparable these days in assuming that Muslims and mosques are by definition suspicious and that the Church of England is by definition legit in its financing. Macron, they add, has targeted normative or mainstream Muslim expressions, declaring them problematic practices, such as wearing hijab, which of course, despite the French meaning, uh, the French phrase la voile, veil, does not cover usually the face. Uh, a hijab is not a veil. So deliberate misuse of language to tar people with the same brush. Uh, 51 Muslim charities are being investigated with a view to dissolution and onslaught in Islamic institutions in France. 73 schools, madrasas and Muslim-owned businesses shut down in 2020 alone. The centering of free speech as enforced and imposed on the Muslim community in Article 6 of this, what I told you about a moment ago, the Imam's Charter, coming straight out of the... Uh, uh, the Elysee, the, the president's office in France, is an unheard of in modern EU law, which is absolutely right. And in a moment we'll be talking about British equivalents of the same situation. But very much as Prophet, oh here are the signatories by the way, to this charter, uh, to this letter to Ursula von der Leyen, a very broad spread uh, of quite a few Dutch, uh, quite a few French and uh, Belgian and British, American, German and New Zealand and Irish organisations which cannot all be uh, written off as sock puppets for Islamism by any means. They, they are uh, quite a broad spread. In our current Dissidents Guide to the Constitution series, we are uh, talking about this book quite a lot, uh, Lord Hailsham's Dilemma of Democracy, written in my birth year, in fact. And as David has been reading out in a quotation which will come out in a soon-to-be-released uh, episode of that, Lord Hailsham warned that if there ever arose a situation where democracy meant the majority get exactly what they want, then, quote, uh, this might mean that uh, the state would tolerate, but certainly would do its best either to corrupt or destroy religion. Uh, that was unthinkable in 1978, but it has come true. So here, for the rest of the segment on the treatment of religion in modern Europe, we're focusing on uh, the normally tranquil Dutch Bible Belt, where I'm speaking from. Now, Trouw, which is, shall we say, the voice of liberal Protestants in the Netherlands, is very sceptical uh, about churches uh, of more conservative bent that wish to exercise their constitutionally guaranteed freedom of numbers in worship. Uh, this is a bugbear uh, for those who want uh, a, a strict lockdown and uh, a, a public health uber alles approach. The Dutch constitution does not permit um, the limiting of numbers going to places of worship. 
uh, and this, this is going to take a two-thirds majority of the new Dutch parliament to change constitutionally, which is probably not achievable, even despite the results I showed last time I was on. Uh, what they're focusing on in this particular slide I just showed you is that in the most uh, Christian and conservative town in the nation, the former uh, island and still a very much a fishing port uh, of Urk. Um, here's the deceitful reporting coming in. The, the Trowel reports this as the church in question, the Sion Kerk on Urk, one of the many churches in, in that small town, uh, partly dispensing with the COVID rules and having, uh, and it says, and, and is piling up again, or, or uh, Volstroman means more like uh, to, 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 be, to be bursting at the seams, to be full to the gunnels. Emotive language, because actually the churches are still observing the one and a half meter distancing. Uh, so that there's not a question of that. This is quite deceitful, especially the idea of rules where this is deliberately vague as to whether it's law, uh, constitutional or guidance. Uh, it's all guidance in the Netherlands uh, and is not enforceable for churches or other pub public places of worship. Uh, the Volkskrant was reporting before last Sunday, uh, this is something akin to the Telegraph in Britain, uh, that the um, outbreak management team, and they use that English term in their Dutch to sound even fancier, uh, was warning that, Kirk, that this church on Urk was playing Russian roulette by not turning away uh, most of the worshippers uh, wanting to come to church. Uh, so come Sunday, we had a very tense atmosphere indeed, and journalists turned up uh, in Urk because it's a kind of stereotypical place uh, for uh, finding conservative Christians. And uh, uh, the headline here from De Stentor, a regional newspaper for the Eastern Netherlands, uh, says um, that uh, reporters were attacked and quotes in the headline, he, that is a driver uh, who ended up colliding with a reporter trying to get into church, he stepped on the gas. Now, as we look through the footage of what actually happened, uh, I don't think that that is a fair assessment. Here, for example, is a rather shocking image uh, of churchgoers being, I would say, accosted on their way into the Sion Kerk on Urk. Look at the young man to the right of the picture, possibly the child of the, the couple in front, possibly not. And look at the apprehension as he has to run the gauntlet uh, of this microphone boom and cameraman on his way into a Sunday service. Something I don't think we've ever seen before in the Netherlands or anywhere else in Europe. And if we look through further footage, we will see the incident in question where you can see quite plainly the parking space to the front right of the image. And again, Mr. Microphone Boom, uh, the, the man's name is Mark Bander, and he represents a, a shock jock channel called Powned or Pwned, which is notorious in the Netherlands. He's effectively blocking this man, this family. If you look at the front right hand passenger seat, there's a young boy of about eight there or possibly younger. He's blocking them from parking and pulling up into church. And uh, this is where accounts differ. It looks like uh, the driver uh, actually ha found that the uh, reporter, Mark Bander, took a step forward. That is what most of the witnesses are now claiming. But anyway, he ended up partly sprawled over the car's bonnet or hood. And uh, we can see that happening there. And at quarter to midnight that evening, the police surrounded the man's house on Urk and hauled him off. I believe he's been released again since then. This caused, of course, selective outrage. This is what the uh, situation was like at the front door of Sionkerk on Urk for that Sunday morning service. And you can see a couple of them there uh, are at least pushing the microphone onto the church front entrance uh, uh, apron. Uh, according to some eyewitnesses, they actually came onto church premises breaking civil law as well, but really unheard of stuff. Uh, down the road as well in uh, Krimpen and an Eisel, a very different community, uh, 
a commuter uh, village basically outside Rotterdam, uh, there was similar things. Oh, this is the last side for Urk because the elder of the Sionkerk, who was appointed the press spokesman, when he was obviously pressed very hard on this by the press uh, uh, the next morning, said in his first response that the journalists who turned up were terrorists and borderline imbeciles. And he said that in Urk, we had happier experiences with the Schutzstaffel, the SS, during the Second World War. He said at least they were polite to us when we went into church. He was then forced to uh, take that quote uh, back again, which is a, a big thing in, in Dutch uh, society. You must distance yourself, you must wind your neck in, you must unsay what you said. And uh, he's been forced to do so. Uh, although I think that the observation is actually factually accurate. The SS did not ban church services or molest them unless they thought that there were um, uh, Jews or other uh, undesirables to them being hidden inside. Um, so what's happened down the road in Krimpenand and Eysel, the other church which got targeted because it had written to its members saying we won't uh, limit numbers again, please come uh, responsibly as, and in as many as, uh, numbers as you, uh, you see fit. Uh, this caused um, a bomb or some kind of explosive device to be left in front of the church uh, on, I think it was Monday night, which the police dealt with. And it seems that this was a, at least a social media stunt by those involved. The Rotterdam Regional uh, Police responding to this became quite partisan and gleefully announced uh, that uh, they uh, made the church deacons go to and, and, and pull out of his pew uh, the man in question who in that situation had been provoked more than he could bear and lashed out uh, at a journalist behind him as he walked into church, possibly involving a suspicion uh, that, that the children behind him were being uh, molested by the journalists from the unclear footage involved. And even in that tweet, they put in the, the, the hashtag press freedom. So it's quite clear that they're party pre, they're quite partisan in the matter. Now, the minister here in Krimpen, the, the second location I'm talking about, the one near Rotterdam, Reverend Anthony Court of the Old Reformed Church in Krimpen, had this to say. You might want, one of you might want to read out uh, what he says there. As our whole country has been imperiled by the government, very many are dying from vaccinations. Death is being introduced knowingly and not prevented. We are not safe under this government. So that is a quotation from the service uh, last Sunday evening, so after the uh, kicking incident in the morning with the journalists. And of course, he's now got journalists listening very carefully to his sermons and prayers to transcribe anything that they can make shock jock uh, capital out of. Uh, but uh, Reverend Court has and his congregation have been in the breach here because they have been somewhat more upfront about their vaccine scepticism uh, or, or vaccine realism. Uh, than even other conservative Protestant Dutch churches. So that's why the journalists made a beeline for those locations. They had their necks stuck up more above the parapet. So journalists went there to see what they could get out of the situation. Now, the mayors in question have responded admirably, I would say. Uh, the first one in question, the uh, mayor of Krimpen, is Martijn Frome, and here he is pictured earlier this month, uh, politely giving the same answer three times to a very activist question being asked at him by the local Rotterdam area journalist, RTV Rheinmont. Why don't you condemn Reverend Court's uh, letters? He's been writing letters to the, the, the local council saying, we call on you to govern the, 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 the town in accordance with the word of God, which, uh, he, which he's being made out to be some hate criminal. The mayor uh, actually did the lawful thing and said, he's a Christian minister with freedom of expression, even though this mayor is, is of a totally different persuasion than Reverend Court, which I think deserves commendation. So people might like to write to the address on screen to commend him for his lawful stance. And likewise, the mayor of Urk, for full disclosure, he is an old classmate of my wife's, uh, but Case Fondenbos has had extraordinary pressure 
since the incidents there on Sunday uh, to symbolically condemn those who couldn't restrain themselves when having uh, microphone booms shoved under their noses on the way into church. And he likewise could do with uh, an appreciative letter because as with constitutional sheriffs in the United States, uh, this is the, the local line of defense. Uh, a local man or woman obeying the terms of their own constitution uh, can negate a massive amount of journalistic pressure from above. Yeah, it's very clear what is happening here. We're seeing the pressure coming on. Well, not only Christianity, it's organized religions. And if people are wondering why that would be, I would suggest it's because the ultimate religion has to be an approved one world religion. And therefore, independent religions will not be allowed to survive. I don't know whether you, whether you would agree with that. That is a personal analysis of the situation. That is, I think, what uh, people of different faiths, certainly here in the Netherlands, are starting to talk about. And they're certainly making sure that they can worship uh, whilst literally singing from the same hymn sheet as the people next to them in their places of worship. It is a time now where people are looking left and right in the pews, quite literally, to see whether they are in agreement uh, on the way forward when the, the persecution gets worse. And so wise decisions are called for uh, from all, uh, I think. But ultimately, yes, the, uh, uh, the, the Dutch religious scene is perhaps more, more centrally organized or, or more numerous uh, per capita than, than in Britain or English-speaking countries. But that does seem to be the conclusion people have reached. Yeah. Um, well, it's quarter past. It is quarter past. Um, what do we say? Well, we, ha we had to go a little bit more there. We'll, we'll leave it today because, uh, as I think our audience will understand, there is so much information coming into us now that uh, we've expanded the news slightly to cope with it. We could talk probably for two hours on what's really happening, certainly in UK, but there has to be a limit. So we'll end there. Alex, thank you very much for giving us that, that very interesting uh, summary of what's happening in, in Holland. And uh, of course, we're seeing the pressure on churches here in uh, UK, and we'll talk more about that in the future. Um, I just wanted to say that there has been an astonishing reaction to the, to the video of the lady Nicola talking about what had happened to her husband after a vaccine adverse reaction. I can only say to the audience that he's extremely ill uh, and has now been put into intensive care. Uh, I have to wait for the family to provide further information before I can update. But if you haven't listened to Nicola's statement as to what, what happened to her husband and how bad it's been for him, please listen to that uh, clip, which you can find on uh, the UK Column website. Um We'll be back in 10 minutes if you're on the UK column live stream with some extra. And we should probably mention that we will not have a news program on Friday or Monday because we are taking the uh, the, the bank holiday weekend or the Easter weekend, uh, extended weekend off. Which we think we deserve. Yes. Yes, we need it. So we hope you'll forgive us for that, um, but we'll take that time off. So that's it for today. Thank you very much for joining the UK column. And thank you very, very much to all those overseas viewers that we know are steadily growing in numbers. Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye.